Welcome, folks. This is Mark Steiner. Good to have you with us for another podcast here on uh, The Mark Steiner Show. And uh, we are going to be doing a series of conversations uh, on American capitalism, part of a year-long series of workshops and seminars taking place at Johns Hopkins University. One of the organizers of that is on the show just recently, Dr. Nathan Conley, who is the Herbert Baxter Adams has Herbert Baxter Adams, Chair of History at Johns Hopkins University, a world more concrete. Good to have you back in the studio, Nathan. Good to be back, Mark. Thanks. And he's brought with him Dr. Mercer Baradaran. And not a doctor, unfortunately. Baradaran, who teaches at the University of Georgia School of Law. And her book is the centerpiece of this conversation called The Color of Money and the Racial Wealth Gap. Good to have you and good to meet you. Thank you for having me. And along, uh, not for the ride, but for serious questioning and ideas. Drive, drive the bus. Yeah. No, I'm happy to be a ride. I'm happy to be a ride. Just put me in the back seat. Yeah. <laughs> Turn the air up a little bit. <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> it is uh, the man who has his own podcast called I Mix What I Like that he produces and, uh, and hosts. He's professor of communication studies at Morgan State University and an old friend. Jared, good to have you in the house. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. So let's just begin. I mean, so, Marissa, the, the book itself, um, we were talking talk before we walked in about the banking crisis America faced in 2008. Uh, and it's, the, the, the people I don't think understand the racial distinction between banking in America, the roots of it in segregated America, of black banking in this country, and how it is how it was affected even more deeply by any crisis that exists. Mm -hmm. So why don't you start Mm -hmm. about your overarching thesis with that? Yeah, so, I mean, banks are a, you know, government entity, and we've always had a segregated banking system in this country. And the the segregation, you know, has obviously in every aspect has not been separate and equal. It's been separate and very unequal. But not only that, there's been a sort of a subordinate um, structure of black finance, but, um, you know, that has been become policy over time where um, in response to the wealth gap, uh, policymakers will say, OK, well, you, we're going to support black banks or, you know, black finance or microcredit or microenterprise. And, and so this is what I'm pushing back on in, in this book is trying to sort of, you know, take a larger focus on the banking sector and look at how it is a network. It's a network that is that sits atop sort of a federal infrastructure of credit and monetary policy and that that credit has not um, been equally available to blacks and whites. And this response of black banking just doesn't address the, the main issue. And so what I'm trying to get at in the book is how this racial wealth gap is created and how banks uh, drive it and are part so of it. So before we the other two people jump into this, I, I'm curious about the kind of roots of this, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, the roots of black banking in America mm-hmm. um, that you talk about mm-hmm. and that, I mean, when black banking began um, post Especially post enslavement. Mm-hmm. I mean, what 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 are the roots, and how does that, and, and how do they grow differently than quote unquote white banks or the banks of the capitalist America? Yeah. So the first black bank was a Freedman Savings Bank, and it was uh, sort of a, a you know blacks were demanding you know land because they worked the land for centuries, and they you know felt like they were owed it, and they were. And um, Johnson, of course, vetoes Reconstruction, President Johnson, and the Andrew only Johnson. thing Andrew Johnson, right, right. the <laughs> only thing that remains is the Freedman Savings Bank, and the idea is like, no, you don't get land, you can get a savings account, and you can save your way into land. And uh, what happens is it becomes this you know big, and and the freed slaves put in their money. I mean, in today's dollars, billions of dollars of money. Hard. I mean, imagine how hard it was to earn 
that much money in uh, in that time, right? These were not you know sharecroppers, um, uh, really really um, difficult hard labor, and they put their money in this bank and. Um, it got speculated on railroad ventures, so it was it became this big pool of capital that these, you know, Jay Cook and Henry Cook, who are these, you know, Wall Street investment makers, like consider you know Goldman Sachs of today, they took this money and they basically blew it on. Now how were they able to take the money? Because um, the bank was set up to be a. Um, philanthropic venture. It was meant to be charity. So they weren't lending, right? They were just holding it. And when you have this big pool of capital, it becomes irresistible. And when you have whites uh, in charge who have no federal oversight, they just invested it, quote unquote, right? Um, and put it in these um, speculative ventures to make a profit for themselves. So that's how it got taken and it wasn't recovered. So, so, the, the, so that, I mean, mm. the Freedom's Bank in essence was not a black-owned bank. No, no, no. Right. So, Although that, Frederick right? Douglass comes in, so the, Frederick Douglass is brought in right as it's failing. Frederick Douglass is brought in as bank president, and um, and he lends another the, theme. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and he, you know, the the thinking is he'll convince because the bankers really needed the black uh, black depositors to keep their money in the bank, and so Frederick Douglass is brought in to say to convince people to keep their money in, and he lends them the bank ten thousand dollars of his own money and realizes that it's it's a sham, and so he convinces Congress to disband the bank and try to recover as many deposits as possible and they do but of course so much is lost by then and you know Frederick Douglass is in an awkward position because he was a booster of the bank he really was pushing this and he pushed sort of you know this idea that blacks needed wealth in order to gain a foothold in society and this was the, a way to do it and then he you know goes down with the bank a bit but he but he also expresses a lot of pride in the bank right he says you know I went from being slave boy to bank president you know so the bank really embodies a bunch of these different themes like you want this you want to be a banker because you've been a slave you know and you've occupied labor and all of a sudden you want to become capital and so Frederick Douglass really embodies this tension um, although it becomes the, you know it, it the bank roots um, builds roots for people that they can't trust the government anymore they can't trust banks um, W.E. Du Bois says of the bank failure you know not a, not even 10 additional years of slavery could have you know, uh, spoiled the, you know, spirits of the, of the black population than the failure of this bank that was meant to be for their benefit. So, um, but, you know, then you have uh, E. Franklin Frazier who says that the, that bank and the propaganda regime made uh, the black community obsessed with banking for generations, you know. So it really does a lot, this first bank. So as we turn to the other folks, mm -hmm. I just to, so let's talk a bit about the, about the birth of, quote, unquote, and use air quotes here, Independent black banking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, wh one of the things that I, I love about Mercer's work, and um, you know, that I think is really necessary for a contemporary conversation, right? Is that you know she's got the ability to basically, basically synthesize the history of banking that can oftentimes seem really obtuse to people and kind of inaccessible, right? And we had an early conversation um, in our acquaintance where we were both like geeking out about a 1936 book, The Negro as Capitalist by Abram L. Harris, right? right? Mm -hmm. Who was a black economist who basically gave a really important early history of this because when you look at, you know, Maris's work or even, you know, books that are written in the tradition of black political economy, they really do understand the link between economic fortunes, fortunes and political conflict. And the thing that comes up again and again and again in the history of black banking is like, look, you can tell people to put their money in banks all you want, but if they're not in control of the political apparatus that basically is setting the charter, determining the terms of, of, of lending and or not lending, um, and then determining who is going to be allowed to live where by virtue of real estate practices or be a best where by way of stock 
practices and the like, then you're going to basically set the table for people to be feasted upon. So the story that she outlines about what happens with the Freedmen's Bank is a story that gets told again and again and again about concentrated black capital basically just being used to prop up different forms of white speculation. And I think having that history distilled is necessary because what we are being told now about the options that are on the table for people of color is to like, yeah, you build small business, you invest in these community banks, and there's no argument about actually taking control of the political apparatus. Mm -hmm. We have yet to get to the point where there's a political argument being made about why regulations are so important. But this this is a a quick aside um, to wrap up. For me, you know, when you go back and you actually look at the history of Jim Crow, that's the history of regulation. Right. Jim Crow segregation is the regulation of the marketplace. And most of what we now call the civil rights movement was a deregulatory argument, basically saying, give us the ability to try to actually have a free market because you've never really given us one. Um, And so looking at the history of black banking, I think, really puts a fine point on that to say you've told people again and again and again, invest your money in these institutions. And they've never really been in the driver's seat to determine what the final outcome of that investment would be. And, and I think there's this theory, um, it's exactly right, I and mean, I love the way he says that, the, the, the civil rights was fundamentally deregulatory. We think about this big state imposition, but it wasn't. It was just roll back these regulations that have been impeding us. But this this premise of black banking and the premise of a lot of black leaders and white leaders over time is if, if you can just get economic power, if you can just get wealth, that will lead to political power, right? That was the Booker T. Washington, Frederick Douglass to some extent. Some You know, d- there's some of that in Du Bois' writing as well, that, you know, first we'll control the economy and then we'll control politics. But what I'm trying to say in the book is you can't get economic power without political power. The way the banking and credit Mm -hmm. works is you've got to have your hand on the lever of politics if you're going to get capital and credit into your institutions. And you can't gain wealth and you can't gain wealth by, you know, your small deposits from your labor and then saving it. You need leverage, you need credit, you need capital. And those things are only coming from the federal government and through these policies. And this is how white people have gained wealth and huge swaths of it over time and have been able to control it because and, and to keep blacks from, from gaining it. And so, you know, you can't save your way into wealth mm. if you don't have that um, political uh, uh, control. That's a really cool point. That's the point people do not mm. raise or wrestle with enough. enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's always it, it, mm-hmm. what you're describing, the chicken, with the chicken and the egg question. But see, that's why I think <laughs> what, this book is so important in, 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 in this Ball. moment because we get, we're in another moment of uprise. We're getting a lot of people on the on the on the ground saying we need to do things like bank black and buy black and boycott and while they while they all sound good and I think harken to some important rea- realities in terms of the need for collective action and political organization, they miss to me the point of 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 how economics work and how how much wealth black people have, the impact of the black consumer of all of these things. So so and then I also think. To, to the points I heard you both making, that they missed the point of of government public policy right. being at the, the center of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of people will say, well, we have to get the money right <laughs> because we can't count on the government. Right, 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 right. right. As if one happens right, without right. the other. <laughs> right. So I wanted you to, I, I actually was hoping you could go back and briefly unpack something you started off with by starting, because I, I believe the very first thing you said, even in this interview, and you, you is a, obviously a theme in your book, is that banks are government yeah. uh, extensions or extensions of government policy. Could you explain that a little bit? Because I think, yeah. especially when people are saying, let's invest in these right. black banks, right. these right, private right. black banks mm-hmm. that will then take our money, redistribute mm-hmm. it back to us, mm-hmm. and create wealth and jobs and da-da-da-da-da. 
I think they're missing a lot, yeah. starting with the fact that these are not, I think, best understood as distinct, separate, private yeah. Entities. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that that is fundamental to all the work that I do. I mean, the, my first book and this book, the theme here is that banks are the extension of the government, right? M- money comes from the government. Credit comes from the government. And banks are just the the way in which that is funneled into the economy. I mean, Alexander Hamilton right. understood this, right? He said the bank is the most important tool of the state. Brandeis, after the financial, uh, after the Great Depression, says banks are public utilities. Why? Because they're using other people's money, and they're they're they're. Th- this is a public good. Oh, that's a phrase. I would love to hear that phrase. Yeah, again. public utilities. Public utilities. Yes, right. They're public utilities. Yeah, and 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 the idea here, I mean, th- there was this recognition that banks actually create money by nature of lending, and that money, the the source of that money, is the federal government. So, credit, monetary policy, that's a social, that's a policy decision. That is not some free market thing because money supply and demand doesn't so supply and demand is about how money is sort of sent through the economy but where does that money come from that's a government um, the, the source is the government and so understanding how banks work then you realize oh okay so there isn't this sort of free market um, capitalism that relates to banks banks are the engines by which the money gets sent around but they're not regu- they're not ruled by the the laws of supply and demand and we saw this during the financial crisis right. banks were failing and the government cannot let them fail. Mm-hmm. It, it, it could not. We even hear them now. We even yes. hear Trump saying now that Wall Street's going to have to come off the debt that it's looking to collect right. on Puerto Rico. So, right. I mean, there is there right. are these potential potential. Right. Can I just ask one more yeah. quick mm-hmm. throw up? Mm-hmm. Please. Because you say there, there was, I wanted to connect. You, you say at the, at the beginning in your, of your book, you say, quote, black banking has has been an anemic response to racial inequality that has virtually nothing in closing mm-hmm. the wealth gap. And then you had this line on the next page that I think keeps coming out, coming up throughout the book that I thought I'd like you to put together here. And you said after black people wanted a more mm-hmm. substantive response mm-hmm. in looking to rebuild after enslavement, you said, quote, instead they got a bank. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, <laughs> yeah, I wrote yeah. a note. I was like, that could be almost a title of the book itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead, instead they, they got, got a bank. bank. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So could you explain yeah. why <laughs> banks have been anemic and why black people were given banks instead of more substantive? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the two big, well, the two of the biggest sort of pushes toward black banks were 1968 with Nixon, black capitalism, and then during Reconstruction, right? And in both of these moments of time, the black community was demanding land and capital. And in both pivot points, mm-hmm. right, first Reconstruction, second Reconstruction, call it whatever you want, they got Here's a savings account. And with Nixon, and this is the, the history that I uncover of the, you know, the other part of the strategy. We talk about law and order, but we don't talk about black capitalism. But this was a subversion of, you know, the, you got the black power movements asking for capital and control. You've got the civil rights principles. Martin Luther King before he signed, right? We, we, this is a populist. We want, you know, poverty aid, right? Real economic aid. And Nixon sort of flips it and says, here are some entrepreneurial things that you can do. And by the way, it wasn't actually any capital. There was just, we're going to have voluntary investments. Here are some deposits. And if you understand how banks work, deposits are not useful. Banks need capital. Banks don't need your deposits. So even the government deposits ended up weakening these banks because they had to offset them. They, They couldn't lend as much. And so, but, you know, because people, I think, generally don't understand how banks work, they're like, okay, well, fine, we'll just use these banks and we'll grow the capital. And it just doesn't work. It doesn't work, you know? And so this is this decoy policy, and it, it sounds easy. Clinton did it. It's not just Nixon, right? Clinton, 
comes in, you know, shore bank, microcredit, you know, so we've got, oh, you give small loans. And you know, this is like mythical idea of George Bailey's bank and people are going to pool their money together and lend to each other. And that's the solution to poverty. The way that any bank, credit union, community bank, any bank ever was able to lift wealth was through these FHA guaranteed mortgages. Mm-hmm. FHA the government sort of guarantees, government right. guarantees right. infrastructure. And that was never available to the black population. Right. And that is what creates the wealth gap. And to say, oh, well, pure capitalism is going to fix something that the state created, that's the lie. Right. And, and, I, and I just wanted to bear down for one second on this, because one of the things that's so powerful is that Mercer basically is able to have Ronald Reagan and Frederick Douglass having the same conversation, yeah. right? And agreeing, like in terms of the black bank as an institution, or you know, Malcolm X and King on, yeah. on this question of like banking. And I think you know, we, we really need to spend some time and ask, why is it that when they gave us a bank instead of land, instead of political power, folks were okay with that as a stopgap measure, right? That was mm-hmm. supposed to be the step to political power that was never realized, be it in the 1870s or in the 1970s. And yet it's seen as being the safest bipartisan terrain on which you can get conservatives and liberals to basically meet, right? And that's the danger of the banking yeah. question, is that it actually neuters yeah. a discussion of more robust political responses because they say, well, okay, I'm going to show that I can actually do this if you just give me the, the, the money to put in my bank. Or we're going to show, you know, the, the white, you know, people in the state houses or in the mayor's office that this neighborhood can pull itself up. You just give us that bank. Yeah. And it ends up becoming a, a consistent bait and switch every single time you have the, the potential of more robust political engagement. I mean, and to be fair to the black leaders, it's understood that the system needed to be changed. Martin Luther King, Martin Luther right. King, before the Montgomery boy, bus boycott, he's got like 10 points of things that blacks need to do. Right. And right. like the top three are banks. And then it gets to voting like <laughs> number five or six, you know. But Martin Luther King also understood that these, segregation was a systemic oppression. So right. Right. Martin Luther right. King was talking about a, a variety, variety of different exactly. things. And so is Malcolm X. And when Malcolm X talks about banks, he's not just talking about banks. He's right. talking about absolute political control yeah. of the ghetto. And so, so, so I think most of these black leaders were saying, banks and something mm-hmm. else, whereas mm-hmm. Nixon says banks, period, you know? And <laughs> I, I think, think it's that's also different... important and, and okay to say mm-hmm. that in terms of some of these great figures, King, Malcolm, mm-hmm. as difficult as it's for me to say, they may have also just been wrong on this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. in terms of the, the value of black banking to a black mm-hmm. revolution. To even have it in, on the list, that's period. That's what I'm saying. That's yeah, right, right. I, I think it's okay. Yeah. I, I would... You know, yeah. it's okay. Maybe they were just slightly yeah. wrong. Because yeah. uh, Malcolm, well, you know, yeah, anyway, there are a couple of things yeah, yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I was questioning. So I, mean, I think it's really important that, that, I mean, there are reasons why men and women who are thoughtful leaders, political leaders, mm-hmm. think banking is important. Because banking, from, in people's minds, is equated with money. Right. Mm-hmm. And money is equated with power and political power and economic power. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. so that makes sense. Why people? Because if, 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 what the intricacies, Marcy, you're trying to point out in the book in your conversation about what banking really is, how we should be defining banking. Mm-hmm. So let's for a moment just stop and step back. Let's define the notion of banking again, mm-hmm. but especially in the context of the black community and what that really means mm-hmm. in terms of, of economic power. Because we're always hearing um, keep money in the black community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm as a way of mm-hmm. saying this is where power is going to come from, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you really go back to a- Abram Harris on this. So there's so the two, I should say, the two black leaders who were against black banks were two prominent black economists who understood how banks worked. And one was Abram Harris in 1930, five or six, he's a Chicago mm-hmm. economist, mm-hmm. Andrew Brimmer, 
um, first Federal Reserve, black mm. Federal Reserve chairperson, who called bla ba black banking essentially snake oil, black capitalism. Like this doesn't work. Yes, mm -hmm. right. Brimmer was an incredibly prescient. And so, 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 so you know, it, it's not as though this is unknown. But you've got to understand banks. Well, you've let me got to snake oil. Why snake oil? Because. You can segregate people. You can't segregate money. That's right. The way banks work is Say right. It one more time. Yeah, you can segregate people. You can't segregate money. And black yeah. banks, when they take these right. deposits and they loan, they can't control the money. It's going to leak out of the community, right? Mm -hmm. Abraham Harris calls them a sieve. That's right? right. Black banks are a sieve where money. And not only do they can't they control it, they're actually the mechanism by which the right. money gets sent out of the community. Right. And 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 the black banks are black, black banks are banks. black all banks all though. banks. <laughs> Banks, but but yes. and that's the, that's the, yes. that's the confusion that people assume that you put black, black in front of it and yes. it's going to somehow operate different. differently. Yes, because money is the same. Money's green and money's right. white, right? right. And yeah. and money goes to more money. That's why we've got five banks that control eighty percent of the assets. Money is naturally going to conglomerate, and this is why in the New Deal, like the reason why we have this, you know, a bunch of community banks is because they policy has to fight bank conglomeration, right? Policy has always tried to break down banks. And this is the, the the ball that was dropped during this last financial crisis is instead of shoring up these big banks, we should have just broken them down to sort of avoid this sort of conglomeration issue. But as it relates to black communities, this money is just going to go up into where the capital is. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, a, a magnet that pulls. And so black banks um, can you know, and, and that's why they 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 fail consistently. You know, um, mm -hmm. and and they are, there are some very strong black banks, and they do good work. And I'm not anti-black bank. I'm just, you know, pointing out that they're not the you know silver bullet that we think that they are. So, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, one of because one of the many many questions I had was <laughs> just that because one of the things that comes up all the time is with is. Again, and I'm and I'm seeing the resurgence with the movement now. We need to buy black, bank black. The money will circulate in the community. One, you're challenging that myth already that mm -hmm. the money's not just going to circulate in the community. It has to, by nature, leave. And that's one of the problems we see now, in general, that labor is stuck and capital can go wherever and 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 reinvent itself. When I was look, I looked up recently and and saw that. Well, I was trying to find the numbers right now exactly to have in front of me, but that if you took all of the deposits held in black banks right now that and put it into one bank like it's like 120 or 130 black banks or whatever and took all that and pulled it into one bank that bank itself wouldn't even be in the top i think 15 to 20 of banks in just in this country not even around the world in terms of and it wouldn't be anywhere close to the trillions held by jp morgan in the top bank mm -hmm. so that goes to one of the other questions i wanted to ask historically is there ever a moment mm. Where if all black people miraculously pooled our money under one benevolent leadership, guidance of leadership or whatever, could that amount of money ever upend the inequality that black people face at whatever moment we're talking about? So it, it, today, if we pooled all those assets or all those deposits, could we really take that money and invest and redistribute and, and overturn the, the, the inequality in black America? Or could that have ever happened? No. No, and and I mean the 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 reason is because you know uh, we there are some black billionaires. There's a few, and we know their names. Right. The fact that right. we know all of their names, because I mean, do you know how many white billionaires there are we'll whose know. names we never know? Right. I mean, right. so and to to look, I mean, I, the numbers are hard to to put together, but 
you know, after the Emancipation Proclamation, I put this in the sort of intro of the book, after the Emancipation Proclamation, sort of right post-Civil War, blacks own 0.5% of the nation's wealth, right? Obvious, right? Because they just came from slavery. They weren't able to accumulate wealth. Today, it's like barely like one5 to 2%. But even with Oprah, even with Jay-Z, even with LeBron, right? right? That is not, that's not going to move the needle, right? Um, uh, even with Barack Obama, right? You you need, uh, wealth doesn't precede political power. It's got to come afterwards. And then we just had this debate mm-hmm. in my class. I'm sorry. Yeah, is yeah, LeBron yeah. even a billionaire in the sense that in the same know. way? Now, he's, he's not. Yeah. No, but what I'm saying is because one of my students was to, to make the argument yeah. against me in class was saying, well, LeBron's a billionaire, so mm-hmm. obviously we can do it. And I was saying, yeah. one, you have to understand, I don't know that he is really a billionaire, but two, he would be a billionaire at the, at the as a result of a contract he got from Nike. Yeah. Phil Knight is a billionaire because mm-hmm. he owns Nike. Right. And and that yeah. I think is important. No, I mean I worked on Wall Street and like the amount of billionaires on Wall Street it was staggering. It's mm-hmm. like can there be this much wealth? And yes, there is. I mean, look at Carver Bank, right? Carver Bank is one of the biggest, most historic black-owned banks. It's owned 98% by a consortium led by Goldman Sachs. Wow. So it's now called black-controlled. It's not even black-owned. And I think that that's sort of indicative of the state of being, right? We've got this bank in Harlem that's owned by Wall Street. Right. Um, right. And it, it, it sat out even the gentrification of Harlem. So there was this new big, you know, I grew up, I lived in Harlem, you know, for uh, most of my life. So I know, familiar with the district, it's gentrifying fast. Yeah. And there's this huge sort of, you know, apartment complex that just went in, you know, and um, Carver couldn't even finance that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just didn't have the capital. Right. Um, so all of that money goes to the downtown banks that have the capital. Mm. So... So many things just popped up through here. Let me just, let me just throw a couple of them out the time we have. So um, I look for this quote. I forget who said it, but I, some hip-hop artist said, we cannot go out in the street and start bombing, shooting, and killing. I encourage none of us to engage in acts of violence that will cause more peril to our community and others that look like us. I encourage us to take our warfare to financial institutions. And that was when the rush was going on by mm-hmm. dumping... More money was being deposited in black-owned banks mm-hmm. in 2016. Sure. There's this gigantic sure. rush. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Killer Mike. I think Killer Mike. Yeah, uh, sure. You know, I, and I, I, right, 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 I right. think that's a good. I, I get it. I, I think that is a really noble um, response, and it's been a consistent one every time. There's been, you know. Uh, pressure on the black community. They've responded with self-sufficiency. I mean, it's always been there, and it's so, it's so, it's so wonderful, you know. Um, and and I, I think that they should do that, right? Um, definitely invest in your black-owned banks. Just we cannot put the burden on black communities right. to close exactly. the wealth gap. It's exactly. not that they didn't create it. Like exactly. white society created, white society benefits from it. Why should we put the burden on you know blacks to overcome it? So, go ahead, Nathan. Yeah, no, I mean, th- th- this is this is one of the, the really important spaces that I think are, have now been open, um, and again, hopefully will be held open um, by Mercer's work, work and by Jared's work um, and those of us who are trying to get this out there, right, is like, you know, we are asked to solve the mm-hmm. problem of poverty um, and, you know, mass incarceration and the profitability of things like segregation, things like the police state, things like, you know, the banking sector in piecemeal, almost like mm-hmm. individual or existential fashion. If I get up in the morning and really try hard, I'm going to topple this game, right? I'm, I'm going to find a way to like mm-hmm. work against and defy the odds and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And that to me is the riddle 
that has to really be addressed. I mean, you mentioned, Marissa, in, in your last litany of, of people, you know, you said Oprah, you said LeBron, then you said Obama, right? Mm -hmm. And, and it's, not, it's not to use Obama as a whipping boy at all, but it's instead to actually just say, like, look, we recognize that Obama is in a litany of symbolic gestures that's meant to basically tell people that as an individual, you can kind of conquer this thing, right? Mm -hmm. And I've, and I've having gone into the, the archives hardcore on the housing question, I can tell you that black folk are always being told, just get some land, just get some apartments, just get a home, and then you'll be fine. And what happens again and again, and there are these moments where folks beyond the realm of their vision, their political you know, punch, whatever it is, can come in and either claim that property by eminent domain, run a highway through it, mm -hmm. they can change the zoning laws in ways that leave them totally flat-footed, and the same is true in, in the banking sector. I think you know, your point, Marissa, which is like, you're not going to tell individuals not to use banks because there's a whole lot worse that can happen to you mm -hmm. if you don't have a checking account, for right. instance, yes. right? So by all means, have a bank, write your checks, do your thing, but don't expect that to be mm -hmm. the avenue for collective emancipation because that's a bill of goods, mm -hmm. right? In the mm -hmm. same way that if you come out of prison and you do a prison education program, get your degree, mm -hmm. read, you know, study, but that's not going to overturn the carceral state, right? Mm -hmm. Don't And don't tell people yeah. that that's going to be what overturns the yeah, carceral yeah, yeah. state. That's the thing that really is most yeah. immoral is that we actually message to people yeah. right. that these self-improvement projects yeah. are the way to actual emancipation when that's just not yeah. been the case at all. Well, it's, like the same, it's like focus on black on black crime first before right. you talk about the police day. Well, this is the same thing. Well, you know, you, you lift up yourself by your bootstraps and then we'll, you know, you no, guys <laughs> pull, you know, pull your resources yeah. together and invest. And, the, and black leaders have done it, too. You know, after the, the Great Depression demolishes black banks and the New Deal does nothing for them. In right. fact, the New Deal crushes the black banking industry for generations. You know, you've Carter Woodson, who I love, but Carter Woodson says it's because our people didn't trust our banks enough. <laughs> we didn't put right. enough money. And so he blames the community right. On this thing that was clearly, I mean, this is the Great Depression, and this is the New Deal that completely left out blacks. And so you have this self-blaming that I think is, is sad. So right? let me stop for just a moment. Jumping in, Jared, I have a couple more questions here. But so so to, to, let's go, stay with this depression for a minute. It's mm -hmm. emblematic of mm -hmm. what's happening today and what is going on with banks in Chicago, right. other places that the city tried to bail out Illinois federal savings alone. We can talk about that in a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, which I think is the largest, second largest black bank in Chicago. Mm -hmm. The last one. Mm -hmm. The last one. Mm -hmm. So, Similar. so, um, but what about, so, so talk about what happened in the Depression. I mean, mm -hmm. this was a, a knowing conscious effort mm -hmm. on the part of the government not to bail out black banks. I mean, mm -hmm. so what, what is yeah. the, what's the whole picture? Okay, so the, the Depression wipes out all, I mean, there's like hundreds of black banks before. The right. Depression wipes out, but that's not a huge story because the Depression wipes out a bunch of different banks, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the one tidbit that's fascinating to me is that the one banker to actually go to prison oh, because his bank failed was Jesse Binga, black banker. And, you know, um, the, you know he gets uh, after... Yeah, of course! Of course, of course. I mean, he's the yeah. one banker that goes to prison, and Clarence Darrow ends up representing him right. and getting him out later. But really, I mean, trumped-up charges because every bank fails. And it's not that the federal government comes in and bails out these other banks and doesn't bail out black, uh, black banks, but they create... A, the New Deal saves the banking industry. It creates this... The new federal government apparatus, FDIC insurance, FHA loans, Federal Reserve liquidity, all of the ways that we're shoring up banks so that they can become profitable and safe. So from 1934 until 1970, there were no bank failures. There were hundreds of thousands of new banks created. This is the era of George Bailey's bank and the mm -hmm. thrifts and the credit unions and the middle class mortgages. There were five black banks that were alive during this time, and those were the sort of like small ones in the South. And the reason is because mortgages fueled by the federal government, were not available to black communities. So 
there were there was no need for black banks because the mortgages aren't going to black communities. And so this, you know, this becomes a story of how the white middle class is created and how the ghetto is created. And it's a state policy story. And it's a banking story because the banks funneled that credit that came from these FHA guarantees. So the FHA was guaranteeing mm-hmm. white American mortgages. They're saying you banks just freely lend. We will shore it up. So you, there's no risk in this mortgage. The, the other did thing not, did not happen in the black world. No, no, right. no absolutely no. not. <laughs> and, 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 and what's so heavy about it is, you know, and this is something that urban historians have been, you know, mm-hmm. kind of passing around like, you know, Wu-Tang purple tapes for a long time <laughs> right, right? or like these FHA manuals and yeah. the actual passages where yes. it tells you, like, yeah. you know, you are not allowed to give a mortgage in an area that even has the danger of flipping in any way in terms of the racial composition, right? So it creates an industry-wide standard where even if the bank itself is not giving out mortgages that are underwritten by the Federal Housing Administration's mortgage insurance policies, it sets the standard to say, well, any conventional mortgage has to clearly be Mm -hmm. in a way that will not cause a racial tipping point. So any black person, even if they have the cash flow, you may need to only finance 10% to get you over the top. Mm -hmm. The bank won't help you out because the idea is that the introduction of that black family to a white neighborhood mm-hmm. will then cause the entire market to basically topple. Mm-hmm. And that and that's the racism of the system in terms mm-hmm. of the banking sector, right? Mm-hmm. It's like we just presume that the average white family will be so intolerant of having a black neighbor mm-hmm. that they will then rally, they'll commit violence. And mm-hmm. obviously the violence did occur, but it was a consequence of what was already a narrative running through the American housing yeah. sector that, you know, we should not have black and white people living together. And this mm-hmm. is the final point of comparison. Let's be clear, black and white folk always lived cheek by jowl, right? They were yeah. always side by side, whether it was domestic situation, black farmers, black business and white business owners. So the notion that somehow like integration or even, you know, close proximity was somehow an economic time bomb that the federal government had to insure against by creating and standardizing right, a right. national Jim Crow policy, it's an absolute chimera. It's, it's an imagined problem in the minds of a few policymakers that then becomes part of the industry standard. And that's the, the story that, again, needs to constantly be retold to remind people that it's not about individual failings of black families. It's actually about policymakers and, and, and political brokers who just decide what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, mm-hmm. om- almost unilaterally. And, and that's how wealth was created. So your grandfather got the house. You know, that gives you a buffer by which you can go you draw on a student loan. You get consumer credit. So once, you know, we've got the housing sector, we've also got a consumer credit issue too, right? So in the suburbs, you have a house and you can get a credit card and you have, you know, revolving credit and way lower interest. So you can buy everything, all of your sort of principles of life on credit that is very cheap. In the ghetto, no houses, no credit. They're doing installment loans, right? Installment loans, you're paying... 10 times as much for a refrigerator. Not only that, but the repo men is there, mm. and then the, the cops will come. And so it just, everything is connected to that credit infrastructure that never passed into the um, black communities. So, Joe, let me let you jump in before we. Yeah, I just wanted to, I, I found those numbers that, mm-hmm. that I think, because I had a, a, an unfortunate, um, somewhat falling out with the Black Lives Matter uh, mm-hmm. leader when they were, at the time where they were talking about let's let's buy black and invest in black banks and this mm-hmm. as, a, as, a, as a method of, of redress. And I was only trying to point out then as now that if you took uh, took the 156 so-called minority-owned banks, so that's not even just black banks, oh, but yeah. all non-white banks, right. uh, they would collectively have 131 billion in assets. That would currently rank them, if, if all put together, as 15th uh, among just U.S. banks alone. It's not counting international mm-hmm. banks. 
with J.P. Morgan, Chase, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America at the top, each in the trillions of assets. So mm-hmm. and those black three banks are, have the lowest assets of all of the minority banks by so a margin. That's sort of what I was saying. That, but even if you took them all yeah. and put them all together, yeah. they would be thousands of times less. Absolutely. Than the top three yeah. banks and fifteenth, you know. So there, and, and and so one of the points I wanted to ask you about was that you know one of the reasons that black black banks fail in terms of this this redistributive myth that I think is associated with them isn't just also because I think you've already pointed this out that black people just don't have any money. Mm-hmm. So black people don't have money to invest. Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, uh, um, Antonio Moore's reporting uh, all the time that half of black families. Seven million black households have, have a negative value mm-hmm. of, of negative wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, the median uh, 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 wealth for working women, black and brown working women, is five dollars. Mm-hmm. I mean, so there, we don't have money to be putting in banks to then have develop into these massive amounts of Multiplier assets that could be things. then right. again overturn the in, the inequality yeah. in, in these communities. Well, the idea, I mean, the premise is that banks will create wealth, but banks don't do that. Banks will take wealth and they'll multiply it, but they can't create it where none exists, right? Um, so zero times zero is... Right, right. <laughs> I mean, the money multiplier yeah. doesn't work. I remember yeah. that from yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. But, you know, you know, I'm not an activist or an organizer, and so I, I do, I, I don't want to say don't invest, like, don't invest because because definitely do do that right, right? right even if just for protest and boycott right. right even if it's just because you know killer mike says like take your hand out of the dog's mouth do that you know and as as a way to like build a group of people to then organize on definitely right, right. definitely mm-hmm. do that um, but don't think that that's an economic answer. That's mm. a political, maybe like a, uh, you, you know, you're protesting in some ways, like sitting yeah. at the lunch counter. Do that for sure. Mm-hmm. Just know that the aims are limited. Well, you mentioned E. Franklin Frazier mm-hmm. and using the word propaganda in yeah. association with the impact that all this has mm-hmm. on our communities. Mm-hmm. And this is something that has been a big pet peeve for me mm-hmm. that, that, that first we're told we're poor because of, you know, mm-hmm. we don't save, we don't spend properly, mm-hmm. we don't, we're not intelligent, we don't work hard enough. Um, and then we're told just stop being so ignorant with your mm-hmm. money once you do accumulate right. some and put it in these banks. Yeah. And then we, yeah. and there are a lot of myths associated with this. So I agree that yeah. we're not saying don't be an activist and don't develop solidarity, but be yeah. a little more realistic. Well, I, I, I've railed against financial education in my first book too. Like this, I, this idea that rich right, middle right, class right. people have is that poor people just don't have enough education, and if they only knew what to do with their money. But you try being poor, yeah. right? Yeah. Like poor people know. I mean, I have a buffer. I can make tons of mistakes, and I do regularly <laughs> right, make right, mistakes. Right. But poor people can't make mistakes. And you point and they out in your book that poor yeah. people are better with money than rich they are people. better with right. money than rich people. I mean, that's just right. proven, right? They know where their money is too, going. Right? I mean, yeah, poor people are better right. with money than rich. People. They <laughs> are, right? They are. It's not a lack of education, right. you know? And you have the Treasury Secretary, you saw this, but uh, the Black Enterprise, I was at this private sort of meeting, and the Black Enterprise um, editor asked him about the wealth gap, and the Treasury Secretary, this is Obama's Treasury, Treasury Secretary, says, you know, um, I was in your situation once, a, a, a poor, you know, this is like after Harvard probably, mm-hmm. you know, and he's like, you just save your lattes. You don't have lattes, and like, <laughs> literally, there is not, there, give me the number of lattes that I cannot drink right. to gain right. wealth. Health, right? right, or it's like uh, it's the avocado. Just give me that number. Yeah, I'm it's like the avocado toast idea. Right, I end up with a billion. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. So, uh, Marshall, yeah. let, let, let me round this out here to, 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 to kind of talk about where collectively. So, where does this take us? 
I hate you know, that question. <laughs> <laughs> Where did this take us? I mean, we had this American series on ca- American sure, capitalism that sure. you are the, yeah. you're the opening the inaugural, left, yeah, yeah, the inaugural guest, left, yeah. right? Yeah, and Hopkins. But so, so the guinea pig. Is, right. <laughs> um, so where does it take us in terms of the political economic conversation? Um, I think I, you've got to talk about it in those terms. I think that's, I mean, that's what we're saying is like, have a, let's have this conversation. Let's have a wealth gap conversation that recognizes state policy and history. I think we need to understand history in order to understand per, current uh, right problems. Because if you buy this colorblind myth that we just erased racism after the I, am a dream, I have a dream speech, then the only explanation can be, oh, well, black people are lazier or mm-hmm. they just aren't working hard enough. And so... But understanding the history, you know, then you can understand, oh, wow, this is way deeper than that. And these are these problems. So I think, I don't know, I mean, I'm an educator and I'm a writer. So my solution is always read and get educated. Um, and then I guess I'll pa- pass the torch to activism policy. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, th- these, these, are, these are extraordinarily thorny questions. And, um, you know, I was actually having a, a conversation with Mercer earlier about this, where, you know, if you look at the history of black activism on questions of, of capitalism, one of the strains, one of the strains, not the only strains, but one of them was actually about taxpayer rights, mm-hmm. that people were entitled to benefits from the system because they, in fact, paid taxes. Mm-hmm. And that language, very much like the language of blackness itself, has been you know, rendered to be taboo and beyond the pale. Like You're not supposed to want to pay taxes. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to want your taxes cut regardless. There's no benefit mm-hmm. of being a, a taxpayer because the idea is that you need to be, be an entrepreneur. Everybody's supposed to be an entrepreneur. How many black folk you know who have like business cards and this and that and white folk too? Like everyone is, I, the idea is the way to being a citizen is by way of entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. not by way of actually paying into a community chest. But the fact is that the federal government is our biggest bank, right? Mm-hmm. And we all pay into it by way of our taxes. Mm-hmm. And unlike with usual banks, we actually are supposed to be entitled to make demands on that institution because we've paid into it. But we don't even, we're not even close right now, mm-hmm. Mark, to like having an identity, a political identity in this country around tax paying that says, you know what, not only am I putting money into the system and it's 70 cents of each dollar goes to the military defense anyway, but I want you to actually redirect some of that to building more robust public institutions, whether it be public parks, public education, public health. I mean, you can just run down the list, right? And so if there's going to be a, a, a political mobilization of any kind, it actually is about moving away from an entrepreneurial citizenship that says, oh, yeah, once I put my money in my bank and I become a business owner, that's my way to political power, but instead to say, you know, we already have a relationship with the state mm-hmm. by way of taxes. We can already make demands. We, we've, paid, we've invested. We have, quote, unquote, skin in the game already. Why not mobilize a political organization, a political party, Democratic Party, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, other parties, to say, you know, we have an entitlement, a bundle of entitlements that we are not getting right mm-hmm. now. And I can just bring my tax bill because I know I'm paying taxes right now and there's a whole lot that I'm not getting for my money. And I think that's, at least to me, a, a starting point for the political conversation. Somewhat similarly, I encourage particularly all these grassroots radical activists to read this book because what I'm getting from it, and I won't project this on onto the author, I wouldn't dare do that to <laughs> But I keep seeing things like you use the word extractive repeatedly in mm-hmm. terms of the relationship mm-hmm. between black people in the United States and the banking industry. And so so I always interpret that as colonial mm-hmm. in its relationship. Here, here. And then what I also read and interpret through your book is this idea that so that I think is in term, important in terms of understanding the nature of the relationship we have that that this is not just a, a citizen freedom thing this is something else going on but then a lot of what I see you saying here is that 
as we've sort of already talked about, there is a government public policy component that is central, if not dominant, or the dominant determinant in wealth creation. Mm -hmm. So that we need that sort of role to be played in terms of redistribution, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. almost sounds like <laughs> socialism. Yeah. Uh. So I would argue that that's the direction we need to be going in, to say we need to have government intervention mm -hmm. to redistribute the wealth we're all contributing to. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons, just very quickly, that I said to try to be provocative intentionally, that I'm not giving money to uh, hurricane relief in anywhere is because I've already contributed to a $23 trillion GDP. Mm -hmm. I've already contributed to a $3.7 trillion, trillion federal budget. Right. To your point, if all this money is going to the military, mm -hmm. why don't we just, we've already created the wealth that right. is necessary mm -hmm. to take care of everyone. Everyone. Mm -hmm. It just needs to be redistributed. And that's the push that I, I yeah. take from your book. So, so, so I think there's, I mean, there's this sort of big elephant in the room of capitalism versus socialism. Mm -hmm. And I, I do want to address that because I think um, in a way we, we've lied about the system that we're under. Um, we, we have never had free market capitalism in the way that it is we talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. Because of the way the banks work. Banks are government creations, and bank credit has always been undergirded by the state, right? We've got FDIC insurance, you know, right. we've got bailouts, right? The second, the moment of truth for capitalism was in 2008. Do we let these banks fail? No, of course not, because we've never had capitalism as it relates to credit and money. And so so I think, you know, instead of saying, well, should we do socialism or should we do capitalism, we've just got to recognize the system that we've had, which is not capitalism. Mm -hmm. And then understand that the state has these duties, right? The, there is a social contract that we have with the banks and with the state because the banks are not free market entities, but they're acting like they are. Mm -hmm. They're acting like they're for their shareholders and not for the public. And what I'm saying is that they've they, they can't be. They're using other people's money. I mean, back to Brandeis, they're public utilities. And we've got, to, we've got to treat them like that. Call it socialism. I think it's just reality. Um, so, 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 you know, I, I don't want to get caught up in labels because then you're just like, oh, well, you're right, a capitalist, right. you're not. But, like, we've never had capitalism, so let's just stop lying about it. Never had socialism either. We've yeah. never had socialism <laughs> either. They have that in so, common. <laughs> I think that could be a great jumping off point for yeah. a brand new conversation. Yeah. Mm. How do we even define that? Yeah. <laughs> so this has been great. I do want to jump off in that conversation. If we had more time today, we would do it. Mercer mm -hmm. <laughs> Baradaran, this has been great. Good to have Thank you in the studio. You. Thank you for having me. This is great. University of Georgia School of Law, and the book is The Color of Money and Racial Wealth Gap, brought to us by Dr. Nathan Connolly, who is the Herbert Baxter Adams Chair of History at Johns Hopkins, uh, who helped put together the American Capitalism year-long series taking place at Johns Hopkins, which is why Merce is here, uh, and Jared Ball, Dr. Jared Ball, who's Professor of Communication Studies at Morgan State University and the producer of his own podcast, I Mix What I Like. Good to have you all here. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our podcast. This program was produced and edited by Calvin Perry with assistance from our intern, Nora Belvidia. You can download the podcast and more at steinershow.org and on iTunes or on your favorite podcasting app. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for The Mark Steiner Show. And please let us know what you think. Write me at marksteinershow.org. We'll be back in a couple more days with a brand new podcast.